0: He e tēnei nā
2: te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. I want you to imagine a dog barking in your head. Can you hear it? How does it sound? Is it crisp and clear? Is it muffled or nebulous? Or is there just nothing? Kia ora, naumai harumai, kitiao hurihanga. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World, Koklek and kanan I think most of us go about our lives presuming that the people around us are experiencing the world much as we do. Seeing the same colours, feeling the same textures, processing and storing information in the same way in our brains. But I'm here to tell you that this is not the case. The diversity of how human brains work and interact with the world is astounding. And today, I want to introduce you to an aspect of this diversity that blew my mind when I first heard about it.
3: I see the world and I think of the world kind of through closed captions, you know, these thoughts sort of pop into my mind and I can comprehend exactly what I'm feeling, what I'm seeing, um, what I'm experiencing, but, but those thoughts aren't translated sort of verbally into this, into this voice.
2: This is Sanghyun Kim.
3: It's a very interesting way of seeing the world, uh, what's completely normal to me, but it's, it feels sort of so strange having heard what, what everyone else goes through, um, having these sort of conversations with yourselves or um, rationalising your thoughts via some kind of voice, which, which to me is, is kind of freaky in a way. I've always been used to this kind of silence.
2: Sang Hyung is a PhD candidate in the Department of Mathematics at Waipapa Thaumata the University of Auckland.
3: So investigating how math is taught and how it's learned at the undergraduate level.
2: His research sounds really interesting, but it's not why I'm chatting to him today. Instead, we're discussing how differently our minds work. Because while I often rehearse sentences in my mind, assemble bits of podcasts, get earworms stuck on repeat and replay full conversations... Sanghyung doesn't. Most of us can do this, to a greater or lesser extent. The best estimate for the percentage of those who don't imagine sound in their minds, or have no auditory imagery, as a psychologist put it, is just less than 1%. So some scenes in movies and TV shows that most of us get, because we have an inner voice, were actually pretty confusing to Sanghyung.
3: There's an episode of Friends where the whole gang is sitting around in, in the coffee shop, and and Ross is telling this story. He's he's talking to the talking to everyone about dinosaurs, and he's going on and on. Carl, nobody, no matter how famous their parents are, nobody
4: is allowed to climb on the dinosaur.
3: Um, and the camera pans to every every character there, and you hear what their thoughts are. You hear Rachel saying, "Oh my gosh, he's so passionate about dinosaurs. It's, it's so great." I
5: love how he cares so much about stuff.
3: Monica's getting sick of him rambling on.
5: Oh, good. Another dinosaur story.
3: And Chandler's just thinking in his own world about if he was a superhero while Phoebe and Joey are just sort of singing and not even focusing on the conversation. But you get to hear and see exactly what the characters are experiencing and thinking at that moment. Um, you hear their voices speak over that and I remember watching that and being really confused at and just laughing, you know, not really being aware that some people do experience the world like that, that for some people their voices in their head are the voices that they speak aloud.
2: When he finally realised that he was in that less than 1% that don't have an inner voice, it came as a bit of a shock.
3: I, I almost broke down and had some kind of, like, existential crisis. I, uh, you know, thinking about what other people... um how they think, whether these thoughts are running through their head all the time and you start to ponder about the possibilities, about how people see the world. Does everyone sort of rehearse their speeches before mentally? Do they sing songs in their head? What are they doing that I, I don't get to be a part of? You know, and it's, In a way it kind of, um, I don't know if it scares you, but it, it makes you really open your eyes to the possibilities that nothing is really normal. It was a bit of a groundbreaking moment when when I really came to terms that this is is a bit of a weird thing. It's a very interesting thing that I think deserves to be looked at further.
2: And that's precisely what Professor Tony Lambert and his team are doing.
1: I'm Tony Lambert. I'm a professor of psychology and cognitive neuroscience at the University of Auckland.
2: Tony got interested in this area of research through thinking about another variation of how brains work – people who don't have visual imagery.
1: So in the last few years, there's been a huge interest really in visual imagery and in lack of visual imagery. So there's an English psychologist, actually I think he's a neurologist called Adam Zeman, who introduced this term aphantasia to the literature in 2015. And When Adam Zeman started to write about this, there was lots of interest from the public and from the media and lots of people saying, oh gosh, I'm like that. I don't imagine things visually either.
2: It's not as if he was the first to come across this, just the first to give it a name and to popularise the idea widely enough that people contacted him about their experiences – Here is Professor Zeman speaking to Kim Hill in November 2015.
0: There were some rather unwieldy phrases like defective revisualization, which were a bit of a a mouthful. So we thought it needed a a simple description, and I therefore consulted a classicist friend who suggested the term aphantasia. Phantasia was Aristotle's term for the mind's eye, the ability to visualize, Uh, and the A denotes the absence of that ability as in aphasia when you can't speak or amnesia when you have difficulty with memory.
1: Can you think of a word to describe my inability to imagine what a fantasia is like?
0: Well, that's quite a common response. And I think that that response is one of the reasons why the term has proved quite popular with people who recognise this experience as their own. Because if it affects about 2% of the population, which some evidence suggests might be the case, then if you have this variation in experience, you're going to spend time trying to explain it to others, to your friends and your family, and they won't get it because it's relatively, relatively rare.
2: The whole interview is fascinating, actually. I recommend a listen But back to Tony.
1: So we got interested in this and it occurred to me that people had completely ignored the auditory dimension of this, because some people have said they don't imagine things visually also don't imagine sounds. So we got interested in this and it had been completely uh, overlooked in a way. In fact, there wasn't even a name for the lack of auditory imagery. So in a paper we published in 2021, we introduced the term anorelia to the literature. And the idea of anorelia is that uh, it's the absence of being able to imagine what sounds like you know either music or environmental sounds like ambulance sirens or voices
2: one of the first things that tony and his colleagues did was try to figure out the relationship between anorelia and aphantasia that is if you don't have audio imagery are you also always
1: missing visual imagery and what we found is that they are associated. So people who say that they don't experience sounds also often say that they don't experience visual images either. And at the other end of the extreme, people who say that they can imagine sounds as clearly as if they're actually hearing them, also, they, many of those people also say they can imagine things visually very, very clearly. So they do go together reasonably strongly. However... In our our most recent study, which used a very large sample, 30,000 New Zealanders with that large sample, what we were able to do is to look for dissociations. And what we've found is that those two kind of dimensions of imagination do actually pull apart, they do dissociate quite rarely. So there are some people who say they don't imagine sounds at all, but they can imagine visual, the visual appearance of things very, very clearly. And conversely, there are people who say that they can't imagine things visually, but they can imagine sounds very, very clearly indeed.
2: For Sang-young, he experiences both anorelia and aphantasia. The names are quite strange and clinical sounding, as if they were some kind of disorder. But, Tony says, this is definitely not how we should think about them.
1: I think quite strongly that we definitely shouldn 't frame it as a disability or an inability. Neither of these things should be thought of as illnesses or neurological conditions or disabilities of any kind. I think it 's really just a dimension of individual difference. We all differ in so many ways in our personalities and so on, and I think this is a, this is another uh, dimension of individual difference and it 's already very clear that not Having that auditory or visual dimension to your imagination is no barrier to uh, to leading a happy and fulfilling life, to achieving very well. So I think we definitely should think of it as a dimension of individual difference, just like extroversion or any of those other things.
2: Decades of psychology research have linked the mind's voice to different aspects of how we process and store information, how we construct memories of the past and look forward to the future, How we talk to ourselves in our minds to impact our own behaviour. Remember to get the milk. No more chocolate for you. What Tony and the team want to know is, do people who experience anorelia use different strategies to do these things? They've got a number of questions that they hope to address, but the one that PhD student Zoe Shelp is focused on right now is how we strategically think about and memorise things in the present. Something psychologists call working memory.
5: It's that little second when you're trying to remember a phone number, when you're starting to rehearse that in your head, for example, or a grocery list, just the part of your memory that has flexibility and ways of either dismissing a part of information or recruiting it into your long-term storage.
2: To test this in the lab, Zoe has a computer program that sets up a simple memory test.
5: People come in, we sit them down, we explain everything to them, and then I sit them across from me with a screen in front of them, and they get a list of four words presented one at a time on the computer, a red dot, which cues them to tell me that list in the exact order that they saw it. If they get it correct, the list goes up to five words. If they can't quite remember it, it goes down to three, which means that I'll at the point of having done 16 trials, I'll get a, an average of how many words they can remember, um, and then I score them based on that. So far she's done this
2: with 10 people who experience anorelia, as well as age, gender and language match controls. I give it a go, but totally cheat. Cult, hint, rush, verb. Red dot. And the red dot means I have to repeat it back yep. to you. But I shouldn't be saying it, it at no, loud. No, you shouldn't. So, yeah, in my mind, I would be, if I wasn't able to say them out loud, I would be saying them over and over in my head. That would be my strategy. Mm-hmm.
5: So what did you find for the people who experience anorelia? What kind of strategies did they use? So what we found is that they're equally as likely to repeat them in their head. I'm not quite sure how that works. But um, we kind of had the same thing happening there where they were able to have some sort of concept of repeating the words in their head but they were way less likely to create a story through the words that they got so there are a couple of words like fantasy and um, misery and and cat and so you would imagine like a fairy that's really really miserable petting a cat a lot of controls would do that and would like talk about how they tried to remember especially rhyming words like that, like mat, cat, cap. They'd imagine a cat on a mat with a cap on. But anorex wouldn't do that. Um, They wouldn't really think of that, which was quite interesting. I'm not quite sure why. Were any of them kind of, I mean, not saying the words, but like mouthing the words? Yes. I kept calling out people being like, you can't actually whisper them, you know. Um, I had one person that I didn't catch up on that used sign language to, like, I guess, mouth them, but with their fingers, which was, I was a little bit like, that's quite sneaky. Um, <laughs> I mean, is that cheating? Could could other people also be using their
2: fingers to remember things? I they don't
5: definitely used their fingers. Um, NRLX used, did that a lot. They used their fingers to remember how many words were in the list because the word lists changed, the lengths. So they tried to remember, OK, I need to remember five words. And then based on that, they'd go back. They were also very likely to create abbreviations. So if they had... Fantasy, atom and misery, they would try to find something from fam and then go back to their head being like, OK, what are the most common words that I like, have recently seen that start with these? So no difference between the group's inability. Some different strategies. Of
2: course, because Anorelia and aphantasia often track together in people, it will be tricky for these researchers to tease these two things apart. Zoe's hoping to recruit more participants in time. And ideally, this will include a mix of people who experience anorelia, but not a Fantasia, and vice versa. How do they go about finding people? Well, remember Tony mentioned that large survey of 30,000 New Zealanders?
5: We managed to put two questions into what we call the NZAVS, the New Zealand Attitudes and Values Survey, which is a huge study that's been run across many years now with a bunch of different items that ask the person that's filling it out whether they can imagine a dog barking or a familiar voice in their head. And based on their score, if they score a one, we consider them an an anorelic. If they score between three and six, we consider them to be a control. And seven, we consider them to be what's called hyperarelic, so have a very vivid imagery. So at the start, I asked you to imagine a dog barking.
2: If it's crisp and clear and you hear it like there's a dog right next to you pestering you to throw the dang ball, then you're a seven. If you can't imagine anything, you're a one. And then two to six cover between, like, a faint sound of a dog barking, muffled and unclear, to reasonably clear but not quite like real life. The same kind of scale is used for aphantasia but with visual imagery questions. For this New Zealand Attitudes and Values survey, people could add contact details if they were happy to be involved in follow-up research, which is how Zoe could recruit some of the people who had answered a one. Her PhD colleague, Gage Tump, has also made use of this survey data. He wanted to investigate something for anorelia that has long been looked at for people who experience aphantasia.
4: Actually, dating all the way back to 1880, there's a, a scientist called Francis Galton who made this hypothesis that men of science at the time would, uh, were all sort of what we would call aphantasic today, but they were completely devoid of any kind of imagery. So the theory was that abstract thought requires like less visualization because it's distracting or something. So using that hypothesis uh, through time, there's been this sort of link between Weaker imagery and scientific careers. So if you have aphantasia, you are more likely to end up in a scientific career, such as computer or mathematics or uh, the softer sciences. And
2: versus s- any other career or versus, like, I don't know, creative careers?
4: Well, they, the original paper found around uh, 20% of their aphantasia participants were in scientific careers and very few of them in artistic careers. They actually found the inverse of this too. So people with hyperphantasia were, about 45% of them were in creative careers to do with the arts and media and so on. And so we sort of ran with this idea and tried to replicate the study because the NZAVS collects all of this occupation data as well. So we just had the data sitting there and essentially we did replicate this effect. We found the same trend for... Uh, Fantasics so that they were more likely to be in. Well, specifically, we found more likely for them to be in computer and mathematical jobs. The the soft sciences did not come out. So it turns out it was more related to computer and mathematics than anything. And then we did the same for the anoralia side of it, and there there was actually nothing to nothing there. So they were not trended towards any particular career at all. So it seems as though the visual domain is sort of deciding this the most.
2: That's interesting because I thought didn't anorelia and aphantasia kind of track together in most people.
4: Yeah. So based on the yeah the data from the NZAVS, it was about a seventy percent overlap, uh, like completely. So if you are say a five on aphantasia, you'd be a five on anorelia. So around seventy percent of people would be matched to that degree. But then the remaining 30% would wi- wildly vary. So, And there were some cases of the like extreme on either end. So someone who is aphantasic, but hyperoralic. So extremely vivid sounds, but no visuals at all.
2: Having finished that analysis, Gage has moved on to another activity, staring at people's eyeballs. He wants to find physiological markers of anorelia, That is, can you devise a test that can reliably tell you if someone is experiencing anorelia? And he got his current idea from a previous study on music and audio imagery.
4: People would listen to music while their pupils were measured through a pupillometry camera, so the diameter of their pupil, how it expands and contracts in response to a stimuli. They would listen to music and then there would be a, a segment in the song where it would go silent and they were told that they were supposed to imagine as as though the song never stops. They fill in the gap with their imagination, so a kind of musical imagery. And they're actually able to measure the distinct pattern of the pupil when you're imagining and listening, and they pretty much found that these were a similar pattern when you're hearing the song itself and when you're imagining it. So there is sort of a specific pattern of pupil response for things like, rhythm and pitch and all that kind of stuff, and it's sort of like an encoding. It's like a physiological encoding of the sound through your pupils. And, of course, starting off with that, the theory was essentially just that, like, uh, anaerobic people should not be able to do this task at all. When it comes to imagining the sound, their brain's not going to think they're actually listening to it, so they're not going to get the same pupil response.
2: So that's the idea of how this test might work. To give me a run-through, we rope in a volunteer... Okay, Zoe, you've become the willing participant. Um, can you describe what the setup is?
5: Yeah, so the setup is basically this contraption that, I don't know if you've ever gone to the optometrist that they put you in, the thing where you have your chin stuck to a pad and your your forehead against a piece of metal to kind of secure your face, and then there's a camera in front of you and a screen, um, so that edge can see the eye movements and so on the monitor in front of
2: you is something tracking zoe's eye movement and also the the pupil
4: uh yeah that's for some reason has selected her nose as the pupil at the moment but <laughs> that's uh that's how it should look normally you can see it's very zoomed in on her eye and it's filled in this area of her pupil with uh so those are like the pixels contained in there and it just sort of measures these in real time as you can see we're seeing a bit of pupil dilation at the moment it's quite oh, changing yeah. quite a bit yeah and so it just sort of measures that and then it produces a obscenely large data file with uh, measurements of the pupil every 20 milliseconds from a 30 minute experiment that's actually quite a lot of data
2: <laughs> because it's such a huge amount of data to analyze gauge is still in the early stages. He's focused on reproducing what the previous study showed, before he goes on to test his hypothesis. We do a short run-through, so I can get an idea of how it works.
4: So at this stage, they're just asked to look at the, the dot on the screen to get a, a baseline measurement of their pupils, and we're looking for the sort of difference from baseline. And so now the, the music will play.
2: Now, unfortunately, due to copyright, i got to cut that out. Gage selected the top three listened-to pop songs on Spotify, Plus, he chucked in Eye of the Tiger. Because everyone knows Eye of the Tiger. So I can't use them. But instead, we can do the experiment with something else. It's not one of the top three on Spotify, but you might know it anyway. (laughs) play it again but with a gap where you have to keep playing the song in your mind. You're not allowed to hum or tap or anything like that. Just use your mind. So that clip and gap were shorter than the actual experiment but you get the idea and if you can hear the sound in your head your brain will be lighting up in different areas and your pupils will be keeping time by dilating to the pitch and rhythm
5: were you able to keep up i was fully hoping that i would line it up perfectly but i was dragging behind and i was a little bit surprised when i came in back I
2: was like, dang it Actually, Zoe probably would have done better with Beethoven than Bieber, because what I just played is a recording of the student orchestra that Zoe plays in. She's a violinist. Engage is a guitarist. They both told me they reckon they sit around a six on the rating scale, and they use audio imagery a lot when they're learning different melodies. But for the Anoreliacs who come in to take this test.
4: It was interesting when we had some participants in and and. You know, I would ask them, like, OK, for this part, you're going to have to imagine the song, and they just have no idea what I'm talking about. They're just like, I don't, I don't actually hear anything in my head, so I can't, how would I do this? And then we always get the questions like, can you actually do this? Like, people are, like, they're more surprised that everyone else is not like them.
2: Being able to hear sounds in their minds themselves, but working with people who can't, Zoe engage, and, and Tony have a lot of discussions around the questions they're asking and whether they're the right ones.
5: How do we classify whether someone's an anorelic if they kind of have an inner voice but no inner ear, if they can't imagine other world sounds, but they still kind of talk to themselves? Do we classify them as an anorelic or something in between? Because there are people who have absolutely nothing and don't even talk to themselves in their head. So do we need to make a differentiation between that? how do we control, for example, for aphantasia or um, do we want to take that into account and so on. I mean, I usually just listen because they have a lot of interesting things to say. And then also when I talk about my own experience, they can argue that and they can kind of say, but, but my experience is like this and this is why it's different in a way. I have a friend who has anorelia who, whose husband is very, very imaginative her and her husband argue a lot about their experiences and, for example, in terms of creativity, how they approach what they want to do because when you have an inner eye or an inner voice, you kind of know what it's supposed to sound like or what it's supposed to look like. So you come in um, to this creative space with an idea of what you want to create. So you can kind of sometimes even get disappointed by the fact that it's not the same to what you imagined, whereas... She doesn't have that issue. She just goes and creates and is is like, oh, this is great. Like, this is cool. Let's add something more to it um, without having that preconception. Um, So it's quite fascinating to hear everyone's stories and just listen to them. It's very early days in the team's
2: investigations into Anorelia. And right now, they have more questions than answers. Over the next few years, they aim to expand the current studies and start investigating those questions around storing and retrieving past memories and imagining futures. They'll also bring in advanced imaging techniques to look at what's happening in people's brains. Here's Professor Tony Lambert again.
1: If we can find these different strategies in the way that people think about the present, the future, and the past, is that accompanied by some different patterns of brain activity? So we do have plans to do that as well. So what we'll be doing is asking people to imagine different kinds of sounds while we're monitoring their brain activity using a technique called high-density electroencephalography. And then we're also going to use another technique called functional magnetic resonance imaging. So we'll be asking people with different experiences of auditory imagery to imagine different sounds and then we will look at what patterns of activity we can see. So what's typically seen when you ask people to imagine sounds is that the areas of the brain that light up when they're actually listening to a sound those same areas light up. And if you're rehearsing something in your mind, you're saying a phone number or something over and over to yourself, you uh, see activity in similar brain areas to the ones that would become active if you were actually saying those words. So there's a lot of kind of commonality between imagining things and and, and hearing things and doing things. So one of our big questions, and this will be something we'll probably tackle in the last year of the project, is to see whether or not we see the same kinds of patterns in people who say they just don't imagine sounds or whether or not they're completely different.
2: Sanghyun Kim has actually taken part in the study. He stayed in the same halls as Zoe and learned about her research through chatting to her. He found the pupil dilation music test quite a strange experience.
3: The song would play and would stop for about 10 seconds. As the track kept going, um, the volume was turned down. And I realised in that moment how much I rely on singing the song or humming a tune or even just tapping um, to sort of keep this feel going. Um, but I'm not allowed to do that as part of this this experiment and it is quite tricky for me to actually to be a part of this melody. And being a musician, it really makes you a little more cognizant about, about how we think, about how we interact with music, about how we are a part of the music. And I think it was a very interesting experience, I will say.
2: That's right. Sang Hyung, too, is a musician and has played with Zoe in the student orchestra.
3: I play the trumpet. I did my undergraduate studies in classical performance on the trumpet here at the University of Auckland, um, and I've been playing that for, for over 10 years. So it has been a very fun journey.
2: From that initial existential crisis, I asked Sang Hyung how he feels about his experience of anorelia now and how he thinks it impacts his teaching and research.
3: I'm more happy about it. I guess I'm just glad to know that it's that it's a thing, that I know that I'm not alone in this. At least, I know as a teacher you become really aware of that that there are students that may need particular explanations, different ways of showing these ideas, often through gestures or through pictures. Um, it's particularly uh, I don't want to say dangerous, but particularly of concern in maths where it's such an abstract subject within itself that I know mathematicians that can just see these things in their head and and don't even need to draw many of these very complex ideas. And for myself, I know I I was never that student, so I know I like to make use of visuals, make use of of colours, lots of different ways to show these kind of ideas. And so I would like to think that it does make me a a better teacher, or or at least a more informed teacher, um, and something that I hope will play a part and will benefit my own research. I'm really glad that this is being looked into now. I'm surprised that that it's sort of taken this long for for people to notice that there was a difference, and I guess it's so hard to identify that there is a difference there, right? We all think that we see the world in, in much the same ways for the research that will take place I'm really looking forward to to seeing what comes out of this you know maybe there'll be something special that only we can do that that the others can't or maybe the other way but who knows I think we should embrace this kind of neurodiverse world that we live in right I think it's I think it's amazing
2: Thanks to Zoe Shelp, Gage Quigley-Tamp and Professor Tony Lambert from the Department of Psychology at Toro, the University of Auckland. And to sang Kim, who's doing his PhD in the Department of Mathematics. Thanks also to the Auckland University Student Chamber Orchestra for allowing the use of their recording of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony at Justin Gregory Ellen Rikers. I produced this one with help from Justin and Ellen. Sound Engineering was by Phil Benj and Tim Watkin is Executive Producer of podcasts and Series at RNZ. The multi-award winning podcast Black Sheep is in its seventh season. It's all about the devious, devilish and dishonest characters from New Zealand history. There are six brand new episodes out now for you to enjoy, two of which have a distinctly science focus. I highly recommend it. Find it on your favourite podcast app or on the RNZ webpage. Our webpage is at rnz.co.nz. Our changing world. We'll put the link to the Kim Hill interview with Dr Zeman there, as well as details of the Anorelia Research website and suggestions of other related Our Changing World episodes about psychology from our extensive back catalogue. If you want to join the chat, find us on Twitter or Facebook where we are at RNZ Science. If you enjoyed this episode, please do share it with your friends and family and ask them on a scale of one to seven how clearly they can play Beethoven's fifth in their head. Tēnā i mai. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great week. Kia pai tō wiki.